and welcome to Changemakers Without Borders. I'm your host and producer, Mai Cooper, and with me is Professor Tara Brookfield, the author of Our Voices Must Be Heard, a book on the history of the fight for women's rights in Canada, and the author of a book about children's rights and the activist women who took care of them in the World Wars and the Cold War on the Canadian side, called Cold War Comforts, Canadian Women, Child Safety, and Global Insecurity. You're listening to part three of this new four-part series about the fight for women's rights in Canada. If you have any ideas for new podcasts or new people to interview, write to me at changemakerswithoutborders at gmail.com. Again, that's changemakerswithoutborders at gmail.com. Without further ado, let's begin. Last time we left off talking about Mary Ann Shad Carey and her stepping down from her role as a publisher, going behind the scenes, um, and then coming back saying that she's not afraid of identifying as a woman, a publisher. And in your book, you write about how male colleagues actually supported her to come back onto the scene. Would you mind expanding on that? Um, she had male supporters, uh, absolutely. But there, and it was a time when she stepped down, there was just concerns about the financial viability, but they lose all their subscribers if she became, if it, because of her concerns that a, a woman was sort of the power behind the paper. Uh, but yeah, I think both, and it should be known for the suffragists as well, um, they needed male allies. You, it was very difficult to operate without having uh, respectable men in the community from business, from politics, from uh, the church to to back their reform efforts. Otherwise, you were very lonely. And so often, the, the first women to go to universities, the first women to become lawyers, doctors, journalists, you had to have supportive men to help open the doors for you to stand behind you. And so we should look at the women's suffrage cause as one that um, was dependent on having um, allies. And it was not just a women's effort, that it was an effort that uh, many men participated in as well, and were, who were equally mocked for supporting their uh, the women. Definitely, yeah. There's a case that you write about in your book, Our Voices Must Be Heard, um, that Colonel James Galloway uh, was perhaps asked by uh, many women to help teach them uh, military tactics and to work with a gun, and uh, he was... He was mocked pretty heavily. At the end, they had to stop uh, this group. But can you tell us a bit more about what they did? Sure. Now, I don't know if he supported women's right to vote. He um, was asked by two women, one of whom was a suffrage active suffragist. And again, I, unless they left papers, I can't always tell what their political beliefs were. So, uh, But two women in Toronto during the First World War decided that it would be good for Canadian women to learn how to defend themselves and Canada um, in case Canada would be invaded by Germany, for example. So these two young women in Toronto, one of whom was a concert pianist and one of whom was uh, an active suffragist, asked the colonel to help train the women um, to be home defenders. And this was considered a radical idea. Now, during World War I, many women were active in helping Canada win the war. They were sewing 
stocks to send to soldiers. They were raising money for war bonds to raise money for the government. They were working in factories, taking over men's jobs. They were helping on farms. They were holding down their households with their husbands and fathers and brothers and sons gone. As I said, there were also peace activists who were protesting war, but um, probably equally controversial as the peace activists were these women who thought, I'm going to take it a step further and I feel women are capable of participating in armed combat. And so they asked the colonel to teach them how to shoot and they raised money for a uniform and they trained on the grounds of a park in Toronto of a shooting club. And it, it was a, a short-lived experiment. They didn't, um, they, they sort of lost momentum for it and the press kind of treated it as this huge eccentric sort of curiosity. But I think it, it shows that a variety of women just thought that they could be take on roles um, similar to men in all aspects, that there was no limitations on what uh, women could do if she had the opportunity and the training to, to learn those skills. Did World War I change the fight for women's rights? Like you were saying with uh, how women were saying, well, uh, we actually believe in not having this war. And some other women were like, why are you fighting for women's rights? We need to take care of the men in the front. So there were these two despairing yeah, sides. I believe if World War One hadn't happened, the suffrage cause would have taken longer. I, my, my evidence for that is while women, many women put the suffrage activism on hold, either to, um, because they needed to focus all their attention on supporting their families during the war, yes. or they were taking up war work, or they just thought it was not respectable to keep focusing on this woman's cause when Canada and the empire as a whole were in danger. So the activism stopped in many clubs across the country. Some people would still, let's say, show a suffrage movie, but the money that they raised that night would go to a, a war cause. They tried to balance both of those. And as I mentioned, some women, some suffragists protested the war. Um, but what the war did was create a public, very public momentum that women were very important to the society beyond just being wives and mothers. The momentum that women did as volunteers and paid laborers and how they really supported the home front and enabled the men to fight overseas demonstrated that women were competent citizens. And often military service is one of the criticisms that anti-suffragists had saying, well, women could never be full citizens because they, they don't take the ultimate sacrifice of going to war for their country. Well, a lot of men don't do that either. That's why we have, have had conscription. That's not always a convincing argument for men. So even though, with the exception of this rare case of the women training to shoot, the women weren't becoming soldiers, only um, in rare cases in, in Russia were women fighting on the front lines in the First World War. But the fact that women were throwing themselves into the war effort helped turn the opinions of the politicians who had been um, very, at, at best, ambivalent about the prospect of, of changing the voter laws. Well, you uh, you mentioned there about uh, women anti-suffragists who were females, uh, which is a totally different animal. Um, could you tell us a bit more about what were the uh, motivations of these women who were against women uh, fighting for the vote? Right. A lot of the, the people who were on the anti-suffrage side, we might assume were just men and who were uncomfortable with what it would mean for women to have those rights. But actually, there was many vocal women, too, who felt that um, this was not something they wanted, that they felt that women had influence 
um, in other spaces and that politics or parliament was to be a male sphere. One of the most vocal anti-suffragists uh, was Adelaide Pudlis, who was, um, an was a, a very sort of intellectual woman herself. She was sort of the forerunner in Canada for advocating for um, home economics being taught in the schools because she believed that women, women's destiny were to be wives and mothers. But it wasn't something that could just happen naturally, that like men training for business or medicine, women should have the opportunities to learn the domestic science skills necessary to be the best homemakers. So learning about nutrition or learning about childcare or healing in the home, that they should just do this through the school system and it should be taught in both high schools and then universities. She came to this herself after losing her own son to drinking contaminated milk and she I think realized like this is something that could protect children, protect the family if women had scientific knowledge about how to to raise their families. And she herself was very active in many reform groups, particularly the YWCA, and was involved um, in doing a lot of public speaking and writing editorials about her beliefs. And in it, when you read them, you see she thought women's influence was the home. That as a wife and mother, um, I will influence society that way. And so she had one quote, first example, she said, I would have failed as a mother if I thought my son couldn't represent me well in parliament. But she trusted her, her she said in her mind, if, her son, if she raised her son well, he would think of women when he voted, and then she wouldn't need to have to take on that act. And she said it would be an affront for her to know that anyone who took her home economics sort of curriculum would turn out to be a suffrage, suffragist because she felt like if she had done her job well as an educator, then you would have seen women could be powerful in the home, and that was enough. So we know of famous figures uh, who made a big difference in our perception of what women are capable of in society. Uh, for example, uh, Marie Curie with her discoveries around radioactive materials, Rosalind Franklin with the discovery of the double helix, uh, Stephanie Kwalik who created Kevlar, Barbara Askins, whose invention in chemistry was used in NASA, um, and activists such as Rosa Parks and Harriet Tubman, and man, the list goes on. And uh, But I wanted to ask you if there are a couple examples, or even one, of women who made a big difference in human rights, uh, who we do not hear about, who we do not know of. I'm glad you asked that question because one of the courses I teach um, is specifically on Canadian women and gender history. And I love using that course as a medium just to talk about the women whose names aren't as well known in, in Canadian history for their human rights efforts. One of them is getting a little bit more well-known these days is Viola Desmond, who is um, an Afro-Canadian woman from Nova Scotia, who some people refer to as the Canadian Rosa Parks, but she her, her civil rights activism actually predated Rosa, who was a hairdresser, um, in Nova Scotia who was traveling for business and was refused um, entry point to a movie theater to sit in the front section because um, the balcony was reserved for colored people, which was the language they used at the time, but she refused. She paid the ticket for the balcony, but then sat in the front and then was arrested and was charged for the difference in tax for between the two seats. Yes. And so she, her actions were fighting the, the segregation that occurred in Canada, like it did elsewhere in the United States and now she's sort of recognized on the $10 bill and there's been a lot like of children's stories about her and a heritage minute so I'm glad her story is getting out there. Viola, she'd break down walls for people of color. Tried to be a beautician, was denied cause of a race, forced to study out of town, came back with plans in place, opened up a beauty school and a hair salon. 
these other women like her. Um, Jean Lung comes to mind. She was a Chinese Canadian woman who was active in Toronto. She was um, a restauranter, an entrepreneur, and she fought in the 1950s to allow um, family reunification from China to Canada. There had been strict quotas from the government forbidding um, immigration from China, and often at times only one person had come over, usually the man, and when these quotas came in, they're no longer anyone able to join them, so families were split. So she was part of a movement to force um, the Diefenbaker government to, to reunite families. Um, who else would there be? Um, there was a, a young woman, Velma Demerson, also in Toronto. She was a, a teenager in the 1930s who um, got in trouble with the law because she was dating, she was, she was a white woman dating a Chinese boy. Her family didn't like that. And they actually had her arrested under the female refuge law, which said if you were promiscuous or drinking and you were under the age of 35, your father could arrest you and have you sent to be reformed at a reformatory. So Velma was arrested, her boyfriend wasn't, and she was sent to a reformatory, I believe, for about a year. And she was pregnant at the time, which is also a reason behind her father's, uh, her, par her parents' actions. And she later then, as an adult, many years later, sued the province of Ontario for having such a law like that that would take away her human rights um, and classify her as a delinquent because she was choosing to date someone or have sex and she wanted to have sex and she wanted to, um, she was sort of part of the, this this lawsuit to, um, to to sort of go back to look at this law and how she was unfairly charged. Did she There's win? Many, she won um, like an undisclosed amount of compensation for her um, for her imprisonment in these reformatories, which were later closed in the 1960s and seen as a huge human rights abuse as they were doing ex experimenting on the women with different um, sort of medical treatments and uh, sexually they were treating drugs for sexually transmitted diseases on these women without any consent, for example. So these are she's part of a wider sort of human rights abuse cases happening to inst institutionalized people. Was she able, because of this lawsuit, to eradicate this law? Um, so she she didn't fight this until she was like in her 60s, 70s, I believe. So many time had passed and that law, I believe, had come out of practice, but she wanted compensation for being, in her mind, wrongly charged by that law, but she hadn't quite fit the exact rules that law had caused. And she wanted to bring about that law and raise awareness about how it was very discriminatory towards women. There was no equivalent male law, um, but the idea that that women could be sort of treated, subjected to this type of um, re-education, she thought was, was a human rights abuse. And she, since her time, she just passed away uh, very recently, but has been quite active in sort of speaking about human rights for, um, for, for Canadians. Wow, fascinating. I have not heard about that law. Um, well, Basically, uh, there's another question about the character of uh, suffragists. There were suffragists who really cared about the the welfare of any women, any woman, no matter their class. But uh, you you bring up a, a good point in your book, uh, Professor Brookfield, that um, many of the women who were fighting to uh, get the grant to to have the vote. Um, were many times wealthy 
white, uh, anti other religions, anti uh, other races, and they were maybe even anti-Semitic. And also, some of them were even against women in lower classes, even if they were white. Um, so, do do you think that uh, that was on th- that can be a statement that can be said on about most of suffragists? Even though I, I hate generalizations, um, yeah. What was the general atmosphere? I think that's a really important question. One of the things I went into this project was trying to understand, like, well, I was asked to write this book as part of a series on suffrage history that's being done in every province, as well as there's a federal overview, as well as a separate um, book on Indigenous women. And something we all discuss as an author series is, did we want to write a book about suffragists, given that they weren't, they're not sort of how we would sort of recognize them as human rights activists today, because they had the flaws of the time of being racist, um, anti-Semitic, completely ignoring Indigenous issues. They were using often to their benefit um, anti-immigration stigma. For example, they would say, why should I, a woman of British heritage who's a white mother, not have the right to vote while this foreigner coming in and claiming citizenship could vote before me? So they were very openly using their privilege, their race privilege, their class privilege. You're right, the majority of suffragists were middle class and above in Canada. There are other, there's, that's not true across the country, specifically British Columbia had a very large working class movement and there were socialist women in all provinces who from different backgrounds fighting for it. But the, the main faces of suffrage were often these white middle class women who saw their own oppression did not see how they're all, they themselves were oppressing others through their being part of the status quo. And most of them weren't wanting to break down Canada and rebuild it as this utopic paradise. They were concerned about themselves and often their focuses for reform were about what middle-class white women needed, like access to universities. Now they did have, um, they did have some concern about working class women wanting them to have safer workplaces um, more protection from assault in workplaces. Uh, Flora McDonald Dennison, who we already talked about, was very active in supporting women strikers, for example, fighting for um, better working conditions and higher pay and, and job security, for example. But she was rare. Most women were just uncomfortable with the idea of strikes. And But even Flora, being one of the more radical, she herself had some very anti-immigration things that she said, which disappointed me. Like, I was, I wanted to see these women as looking for fairness and equality and human rights for all. But I think they were very myopic and looking for only focused on gender rights, not seeing very much um, need, for example, to reach out to to Black women, to Jewish women, to Indigenous women, and seeing some united sort of reasons or addressing the interrelated sort of oppression that those women were facing for not being sort of part of the majority or the powerful groups. Mm -hmm. Um, So about the vote it took 25 years for uh ontario to to grant this vote for women uh 25 years after new zealand uh and they weren't the first in canada to to grant the vote manitoba was the first one and ontario Mm -hmm. was the fifth so uh what what happened there why didn't the capital actually uh spearhead this movement and I would go back a little bit. I would say from the time like Emily Stowe was active, or this first female 
a physician, she was the first, she started the first suffrage club in Canada. Is probably about like almost close to 50 years before women in Canada got the vote. So it's even longer. Um, New Zealand also had a long period before they were successful. For sure. So yeah, it took like these five decades of activism to get the law changed. And if Ontario was the first place in Canada to start, why was it the fifth to get the vote? I think that has to do with um, Ontario having quite a large, uh, in its origins of, of conservatism. The white settlers who came to Ontario were predominantly coming from seeking refuge from the United States, who was amid their their revolution, and they were purposely choosing to stick within British visions of democracy and not the uh, more revolutionary side of politics that their Ameri- the people who chose to stay in America did. So they came to Ontario because they would, did not want great reform. And so when people in the province began to ask for reform, they were reluctant to to give it. The prairie provinces being newer provinces with people with, um, they were a bit more on the fringe of Canada. The people drawn out there came from all sorts of backgrounds, including immigrant groups. And they had less, I think, entrenched British conservatism that Ontario did. And so... The, the suffragists there had equally difficult struggles for many decades, but were successful in convincing their provincial governments before Ontario. So amid the First World War is when these laws were being changed. And I think by the time it came to Ontario, the premier um, felt peer pressure to, to make those changes and follow. Um, and he was, I think, worried about his government following because it had been liberal governments who had made the changes in other provinces, and it was a conservative government in Ontario. And he, I think he worried if he didn't do it, he might get voted out and have a, a liberal government come in and take the win. So, in fact, in Ontario, it was a liberal member who introduced it in Parliament. He was called out of turn, and uh, like literally the next day, the premier, the conservative premier, said, "I have a suffrage bill that we're going to support instead." So I think he wanted to take credit for it if it was going to happen. In the book, Our Voices Must Be Heard, you add many entertaining but real cartoons of men who drew over the years about the suffrage movement, and many of them are not uh, flattering uh, towards the suffragists. Uh, I'm really interested to know, how did you find these cartoons, and uh, what do you think was the overarching issue with them? I think historians love finding great images that can convey an idea. And I think that's why cartoons existed in the first place. They were popular in newspapers at the time to convey a particular moment and capture the spirit of a debate or an opinion at the time. So it was not difficult to find suffrage cartoons. First of all, there had been many other historians before me had singled out and um, were already accessible. And then I was able to, to find many in archives that had been sort of labeled with key terms that were applicable to my research. And I could have put dozens upon more because they, they were not a shortage. I'm very short on suffrage pictures, mainly because photos weren't as abundant for the earlier period. And then they have not been preserved, unfortunately, for, for suffragists. But because newspapers have been digitized and saved and periodicals, I was able to find some just by skimming days and days. Um, So that wasn't difficult, but you're right. They were, you can really capture the spirit of the opinion at the time. There was one Toronto newspaper called The Grip that started off as anti-suffrage. And you can look at their earlier works uh, where they present the women who are participating in the suffrage movement as manly, as ugly, as misshapen. They, They might look 
kind of like um, a crow, for example. They're dressed in dark clothes. They have glasses. They're maybe carrying an umbrella. And then the editor himself of the grip became pro-suffrage after meeting and, and speaking with some suffragists. And so his paper changed his tone. And then they have the opponents to suffrage looking ridiculous instead of the women. They'll heal. They, for example, they would have like men looking like babies for being anti-suffrage while the suffrage women would look much more reasonable. So they're a great snapshot for teaching and for capturing sort of the, the, the spirit of the debate without relying on text. And the just to double check, uh, the people who were drawing the cartoons that were anti, uh, the anti-suffragists, uh, were they men? That's a good question. Uh, many cartoons aren't signed. Uh, there's a few that I found in archives that came from a larger artist's sort of repertoire. Um, so we know who the artist is. Um, I think all the ones that I have that are identified were from men. And so it's not clear if if, if you're employed by a newspaper, are those your ideas or is your publisher telling you what to do? So I, I can't say for sure that the, the illustrator was the one responsible for representing their own personal feelings. But I didn't come across any female illustrators at the time who were um, identified as female or suffragists, for example. And were there con- cartoons that uh, went directly against Indigenous peoples as well? Related to suffrage as well? Um, or? Well, in, in, in relation to Indigenous uh, rights, and, uh, and the reason I'm asking this is because the next question is about uh, Indigenous peoples, and I was wondering if perhaps you saw uh, cartoons about them. Yes. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll mention one example from within suffrage, but it's not unique to suffrage. There's been a lot of extremely racist cartoons always about Indigenous people, even like in, to, to, in 2020, in which it's very stereotypical imagery is being used in a, in a manner that the, the artist thinks is humorous, but doesn't necessarily realize the, how ingrained it is in hatred and prejudice. In the case of suffragists, there's a, a, period, um, a Western periodical from Western Canada called the Grain Growers Guild, which was used very popular amongst farmers. And they were political in, in their, their nature, it wasn't just about like grain prices. And there's a suffrage cartoon of a little girl standing outside a polling station where people would go to vote. And by, this is early 20th century, I think it was 1909. So people, it was secret voting at the time. So they weren't in the same situation as those early widows. And she's standing tugging at her mother's skirt saying, why doesn't mommy have the vote? And the mom is dressed very respectable sort of of the time. Um, and there's a line of men going into the voting station. And um, one of the men is a, is a is a Chinese man depicted in sort of a traditional garb at the time, um, but racialized in in a not very respectable way. A ponytail, slanty eyes. Um, there's um, a, a home someone probably who we would describe as a homeless person, misshaven, dressed in baggy, ragged clothes. Um, and one of the other people being brought in is a, a tobacco would an Indian figure being pushed in like a statue of an indigenous person, but there's sort of what these were common in tobacco shops as to promote a particular cigarette brand. And so they're pushing in and the, the cartoon is sort of saying like, why doesn't mommy have the vote when all these despicable men have the opportunity to vote? Now that particular cartoon is misleading because um, based on the Indian Act in Canada, indigenous people could not get the vote unless they willingly gave up their status. 
So I guess technically an Indigenous man could get the right to vote if he relinquished his status, which is, I think, what they're trying to protect, present that he, that he could, um, if they gave up their status, be part of this line of men getting the vote before women. Um, but that cartoon completely ignores the, 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 the trouble with the Indian Act restricting human rights and the legacy of colonialism that took autonomy over Indigenous men and women uh, violently through the, the history of Canada. So this, even though this was like a, a cartoon saying, yeah, why can't women have the vote if men do? It took this racialized tone that singled out uh, racialized men as being uh, ruining Canada while this respectable white woman could have done so much better. You've been listening to Changemakers Without Borders about the fight for women's rights in Canada. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Professor Brookfield and I speaking about this subject. I'm your host and producer, Mai Cooper, and I hope to see you on the next episode of this four-part series. Thank you for lending your ears.